Thank you all very much for being here. I'm very glad to see you here inside, although I'm sure a lot of you are having guilty feelings about wasting this beautiful afternoon. If this were, if this were my lecture class, I would literally take you all outside, which is, which is what we do. We just go outside and we give the lecture class outside. Um, I am going to be talking to you today for about 40, 45 minutes about um, what I take to be the crucial issue of, of this year and perhaps the next years to come, which is what happens in this war. Um, I've titled this lecture, As Ukraine Goes, So Goes the World. And I, I've titled it this way, not because I think Ukraine is the only place in the world that matters, but because I think that Ukraine and this war reveal some of the possible turning points, not just for Ukraine, but for all of us. This case I'm going to try to make across four issue areas. I'm going to talk about the future of fascism, question mark, the normalization of genocide, question mark, the, con the continuity of colonization, question mark, and the ethic of democracy, question mark. So as you can see, the, I'm saving the happy part for the end. And of course, there's always the risk that I'll run out of time and there will be no happy part, right? Which is also true in life. Um, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested at the demographic that found that funny. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with a conversation I had last night. I was on television last night on the Lawrence O'Donnell show. And when you go on television on these late night shows, you don't actually know what they're gonna ask you ahead of time. You don't know what clip they're gonna show. The clip that he showed was a clip from Russian television from a couple of days ago where a man called um, Pavel uh, Gubarov was on and he was saying to Ukrainians, addressing Ukrainians, um, we haven't come here to kill you, but if you don't agree with us, we are going to kill you. We'll kill a million of you. We'll kill five million of you. We will exterminate every last one of you. Um, this man, Pavel Gubarov, is a Russian neo-Nazi. I want to begin the part of this lecture, which is about uh, fascism, by, 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 by explaining what he was saying. When he said, we didn't come here to kill you, what he meant was, uh, so long as you accept your Russia, then we're not going to kill you. Right? So if you Ukrainians will just accept that you're Russian, then we're not going to kill you. And then at the end of what he said, he said something which is very important, um, although it's going to seem strange. He said, the reason why Ukrainians don't understand that they're Russians is that they are possessed, like in the sense of possessed by Satan. Now, that might just seem like, that might seem like, you know, a fantasy from like teen novels that you surely no longer read. Um, but there's, a, it's, there's actually something serious underneath this. This business that what the Russians are fighting in Ukraine is Satanism is actually pretty widespread. One of the leading propagandists on Russian television, um, uh, a, a man called Solovyov, the other week said, you know, at the end of his show, what are we fighting? We're fighting Satan. We're fighting Satanism. What does that mean? I'm going to try to decode this. Okay, I'm going to get a quick jump to the end. They're not really fighting Satanism. Um, but what does it, what does it mean? Um, what, what, what's the, what's the ideological system which leads people to say that they're fighting a war against Satanism and it would be right to kill one million people, five million people, 
40 million people, because that's how many Ukrainians there are, in order to get rid of this. Where, where do you get that? Where it comes from is an ideological system uh, which is a kind of Russian Christian fascism. And the way that the system works is like this. It presents the world as having been flawed from the beginning. The world was flawed from the creation. There's an original sin about the world. The world is messed up. Now, the way that the world is messed up might be something that you find to be normal in your everyday life. I'm going to confess I kind of hope that it is. The way that the world is messed up, according to this Russian Christian fascism, is that not everything fits together perfect into a whole. Right? That there are, there are cracks and gaps and there are differences and there's diversity and things don't all fit together into one beautiful singularity. So the, the things that you apprehend in your daily life as facts, from the point of view of Russian Christian fascism, that's what's wrong with the world. There aren't really facts. There really should just be some deep, invisible unity and truth. The things that you apprehend every day in the world as values, like loyalty to your friends, or appreciation of beauty, or generosity, those aren't real either. All that's real is a kind of deep, <coughs> fundamental unity which has been lost. Okay. How is this deep, fundamental unity of the world which has been lost to be restored? This is where Russia comes in. In this ideological system, there's only one part of the world which has not been thoroughly corrupted and destroyed and fragmented, and that part of the world is Russia. So in this system, the mission of Russia is to restore unity to the world. Now, if you think this way, there are some very interesting implications. And if you get these implications, a lot of Russian propaganda will start to make more sense, or at least you'll see where it's coming from. One implication is there, there are no facts, right? There is, there is no truth in the conventional sense. The only truth is the deeper truth. Whatever it is that I say that helps Russia restore itself, that's true. There are also no values. Um, there's nothing which is good except the restoration of Russia and its mission to bring the entire world together. That's the only thing which is actually good. So all of your facts and all of your values and all these things that might make up your daily life, those are irrelevant. They don't matter. Another implication of this view is that Russia is permanently innocent. No matter what Russia does, it's innocent because Russia is doing the only good thing, which is trying to restore the world. There are no other good things. That's the only good thing which is happening or could possibly be happening. And therefore, whatever means Russia is employing to bring about this restoration of the world, they're justified. They're good. So what might look like an invasion of another country or what might look like missile attacks or what might look like rape or what might look like uh, the execution of local leaders or what look, might look like mass graves, those things are all good because, they are, because Russia is doing them and therefore they are part of this restoration of the world. Once you are inside this system, I guess making sense is not the right way to think about it, but once you're inside this system, um, then you can begin to get a handle on why somebody might go on national television and talk about killing millions of people um, because they don't know who they are. Now, this also has direct implications for politics. In this version of Christian fascism, Jesus is wrong. Jesus got Christianity wrong. Christianity is not about loving your neighbor. Christianity is about knowing who your enemy is. 
That's where Christianity begins. Okay, so in this version of Christianity, it's not about what you do or how you treat, about treat others well. It's about knowing who you are by choosing an enemy, which is the classic beginning point of fascism. That is the beginning point of fascism. Fascism is the politics of us and them, where you choose your enemy. Right. In this case, um, the enemy is the rest of the world that doesn't understand what Russia is doing. Now, you might think, okay, this was just some guy. This was just some guy, this Pavel Gubarov. Maybe he's just some random person. He doesn't really matter. Um, but these ideas that I've just been summarizing are very widely held. Um, I mean, it's been my contention, and I wrote about all this several years ago in a book called Road to Unfreedom, that these kind of ideas are pretty widely circulating, and they matter for the people who appear on television, but also for the people who appear in politics. The, the leading Russian thinker who articulated these kinds of ideas is a fellow called Ivan Ilin, um, who only came to my attention because the president of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin, kept citing him over and over and over again in his speeches, um, which led me to try to figure out who this fellow Ilin is. And um, as, as, as the people who really know this stuff noticed, when Putin gave, his, gave a speech on September 30th about annexing, quote unquote, annexing these parts of Ukraine, um, he cited Ivan Ilin again. So we have the president of the Russian Federation, again and again citing the leading Russian Christian fascist thinker, but he's not only citing him. Putin's own ideas about all this make a lot more sense, or they are more coherent, if we understand them within this fascist framework. What does Putin say about Ukraine? He says mysteriously, Russia and Ukraine are always together. We have always been together. And why have we always been together? We have always been together because of a baptism. Putin is obsessed with a baptism, which might or might not have taken place in the year 988. Um, the, the person who was baptized was a Scandinavian prince called Valdemar, who came from a slave trading clan, um, which was just settling down and setting up a state in the city of Kiev. Putin is obsessed with this baptism. Why is he obsessed with this baptism? He has this idea that it created Russia and Ukraine, but like that's too stupid, honestly. Like there's some things you just can't, with all respect to the donors, pay me enough to talk about. Um, and one of them is the idea that a thousand years ago there were modern nations running around and they got brought together with a baptism. Sorry, I mean, we only have four, we only have forty minutes, and that stuff is just too dumb. Um, what I what I am going to talk about is that like is this is this fascist view, um, which is that a baptism is a natural way of beginning a story about purity, right? The point of the obsession with the baptism is that that's a moment where you start over, where everything starts over, where everything is clean and pure. And that is why Putin for the last 10 years has been saying over and over again, baptism, eternity, Russia and Ukraine together forever. In this story, for all of these Russian Christian fascists and also for Putin, Ukraine is at the center because Ukraine is the first fragmentation. It's the first thing that shouldn't have been taken away from Russia. Um, anyone who talks about there being Ukraine in this view is an enemy of Russia. Um, and again, here, it's very important. The facts don't matter. I realize, like, I hope this is hard for you to get your head around. I mean, I hope. But it doesn't matter if there seems to be a Ukraine. It doesn't matter if Ukrainians are fighting. It doesn't matter if they're speaking Ukrainian. It doesn't matter if they have civil society. It doesn't matter if they're driving ambulances to the front. It doesn't matter if they have their music, their own plays, their own film. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the deep underlying truth. 
that Russia and Ukraine have always been together, right? And so in this worldview, the idea that Ukraine is not Russia is like the first violation. And the, and the first thing you need to do for Russia to start restoring the world to the way it's supposed to be is to ensure that Russia and Ukraine are together. Now, there's, there's one other thing I want to say about fascism, or a couple, before we get to this. The first is, okay, now do you understand how you are all Satanists? Because, so you might not have known this. I mean, okay, a couple of you did, I can tell. Um, I can read your expressions. But you didn't know that you were Satanists before you came in. All that it, so what does Satanism mean in this view? Satanism means that you believe in facts. Satanism leaves that you believe in values. Satanism means that you believe the world is complex and diverse and composed of people who have different ideas and that you can't actually push them all back together into one beautiful thing. That's what Satanism means here, right? And so when, when, you, when we go back to this remark by this Russian soldier about killing millions of people in order to hold off, head off Satanism, that's what it's about. He's expressing a fascist worldview and the fascist worldview targets as Satanist, that is, as anti-Christian, um, the notion that the world is full of different ideas, different kinds of people, different kinds of facts. That, in other words, that the world is plural, right? The world can't be brought down into one thing. And if you know that, then the, the Russian regime's attitude for, towards sexual diversity and gender diversity and all kinds of other diversity come clearer, right? They don't become more defensible, but they, you can see where they're, where they're coming from because they think there's no sort of diversity in the world at all or, or shouldn't be. The other, the other implication of this, which is, which is really interesting, is that you, you understand why, um, why the Russians are always calling other people fascists. Okay, so you might have noticed that there's this trend, um, which is very 21st century, which is that you are a fascist and that you call other people fascists. Um, this, is, um, this is what I call in my book, schizofascism. And, and the, the, the Russian Christian fascists do this all the time. They say and do things which are incontestably fascist, but then they say that you're the fascists, right? You're the actual fascists. How does that work? Why does that actually make sense? Or why does it make a kind of sense? The way that it makes a kind of sense is that fascism, so like, stay with me. We gotta stay in this mindset for like five more seconds. In fascism, there aren't really facts, right? There aren't, there aren't, so it doesn't like, and, and fascism is about the celebration of will. It's about the celebration of imagination. So if I call non-fascists fascists, I'm actually doing something which is consistent with fascism, right? I'm imposing my propaganda, my ideas on, on the world. And don't say that it doesn't work, because it does work. People spend a whole lot of time asking themselves, like, am I a fascist? Okay, maybe not that, but they spend a whole lot of time asking themselves, are Ukrainians all fascists, right? Don't they? They're spending an awful lot of that. And that's that, and, and, and interestingly, the people who are saying that Ukrainians are all fascists are often fascists, right? That doesn't stop it from working. So ultimately, this is, this is a kind, this is a politics of us and them, where the, where the us is Russia, and Russia has the right to do whatever it wants to do because Russia is the only power that can restore the world to the way the world is supposed to be. What does this mean for the politics of this war? I mean, there's a very clear lesson here. Uh, fascism was never defeated as an idea. We'd like to think that fascism was defeated as an idea. We'd like to think that democracy was always stronger than fascism, but it wasn't. Uh, fascism very nearly defeated democracy in this country. 
They could defeat fascism in this country again. In the 1930s, fascism was generally thought to have triumphed over democracy in much of Europe and certainly among many Americans. The reason why fascism lost is because the Germans and the Italians lost the Second World War. Not because whatever we want to think that our ideas might be the better ideas, but it's not because the Democrats and the liberals won the argument. It's because they won, it's because they won the war. Um, and so if one doesn't want there to be fascism in the world, that's something which is worth remembering. Because these kinds of concepts, are, I can clarify them, I can talk about them, I can have debates about them, but they're not going to be defeated that way. Right? You're not going to stop being Satanists, with, if you see what I mean. Right? You're not going to stop being Satanists by making the argument. Right? You're only going to stop being Satanists when, this kind of, when these kinds of ideas don't win on the battlefield. So the battlefield brings me to the second thing I wanted to talk about, which is the, the, the normalization of genocide, question mark. So going back to this remark, it, 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 is, it should seem a little strange that on primetime television you have someone standing up and saying we're going to kill a million, five million, 40 million people, we're going to exterminate them all. If it doesn't seem strange, it's because we're getting used to all of this. And that's, that's the thing which troubles me when I say normalization. Um, and again, when I, I cite this fellow Gubarov, I'm really just doing this because he's the most recent person on television. All of Russian television is basically one big genocidal echo chamber all the time. Um, and uh, you know, there, there are good people like Julia Davis on Twitter who are, who are slicing up the clips so that you can see this if you want to. Um, but it's normal. And again, it's not just normal for the propagandists, it's, it's also normal for, for Mr. Putin. Um, Mr. Putin has been saying for, for almost a decade now, but with particular intensity since the end of last year, that there is no such thing as the Ukrainian people. You say there's no such thing as a certain people when you're planning to destroy that people, right? When you deny the existence of a people, what you're saying is, I'm going to create the conditions in which those people no longer exist. This is, this is genocidal language. And this genocidal language, I want to make clear, um, works well with this specific kind of Russian fascism which I've been describing. Because if Russia and Ukraine have always eternally been together because of this baptism a thousand years ago, and that's the deep underlying truth, then there isn't a Ukraine. And if there seems to be a Ukraine, what's the source of that? The source of that is alien factors who somehow crept in from the outside, right? So there isn't really a Ukraine. There are just Poles or Habsburgs or Germans or Jews or European Union members or Americans. Someone has come in from the outside and they've spoiled our Eden. Someone's come in from the outside, they've infected our unity. Someone's come in and they've created this artificial thing. And that, by the way, explains the Russian war plan because the, the, the political assumption of Russian war planning was there isn't really a Ukraine, it's just these foreign-backed elites at the top, right? Like that Jew Zelensky. It's just these foreign-backed elites at the top and as soon as we kill all of them, then all of the happy Ukrainian peasants will make parades for us, you know, bread and salt, all of that. that. And the reason that they expect that 
is the way that they think about the non-existence of the Ukrainian nation. But, um, but my point here is that this way of thinking, this fascist way of thinking, leads, in, leads to a particular argument for a kind of genocide, which is that if you think the real Ukrainian nation is the nation which understands that it's in Russia, then you have to get rid of all the people who don't think that. And you might find out as you proceed that this is very many people indeed. And so at the beginning of the war, there was a genocidal concept, which is destroy the elite. That's already a genocide, by the way, according to the 1948 convention. If I, if I try to destroy the thinking classes or the political classes or the educated classes of a group, that's already genocide. Right? But when you, do, when you realize that Ukrainian identity or Ukrainian affiliation, Ukrainian action goes beyond some elite, then you say, okay, the group is bigger, we're going to kill more people, which is the direction that their speech and their action has actually gone. And again, I'm gonna stress this. The problem is not that they don't say this. Like normally, when you talk about genocide, you know, the lawyers will come up, um, I'm sorry, but they sort of nod and they'll say, well, yes, you know, terrible things happened, but it's very hard to prove intent. That is just not the case this time. That is not the case. There's an overabundance of declaration of genocidal intent. And the problem is, that we're getting used to it or have already gotten used to it to the point that if we say, well, we're not sure there's genocidal intent, it's because we're so jaded by listening to people talk about killing millions of people on television, right? That when the president of Russia says that there isn't a Ukrainian nation, he is setting up <coughs> genocidal intent. When, when Dmitry Medvedev, the former president of Russia, a member of the Security Council, talks about exterminating the Ukrainian nation, He's expressing genocidal intent. When television, when television propagandists, all of whom work for the state, tell the Russian people over and over again that the Ukrainians should be exterminated, that is incitement to genocide, that is an expression of genocidal intent. Right? Um, so the interesting thing about this genocide, if interesting is the right word, it's not, it's not just that the Russian invasion and occupation of Ukraine has led to crimes which meet all of the criteria of the 1948 convention, which I'm gonna to mention to you now. Killing members of the group, yes. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, yes. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, yes. Imposing measures intended to prevent births, yes. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, yes. The children part, by the way, is often overlooked but the Russians have deported, by their own count, four million people from Ukraine, which is one-tenth of the population, and includes hundreds of thousands of children, many of whom have been taken deliberately from their parents with the idea that they will now be raised as Russians rather than Ukrainians. Um, the Russians are deliberately sending representatives of their indigenous people, the men, to go and fight and die on the front, and then in return, what they're bringing back from Ukraine are Ukrainian women and children who they believe are assimilable, right? Um, all of that is many things, but one of the things that is, is genocidal, is genocidal. Um, and of course, punishable under the 48 Convention is not just genocide, but genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, attempt to commit genocide, complicity in genocide. So according to that law, there are an awful lot of people now who would be subject to the convention. But as I say, the interesting thing is unfortunately it's not these sorts of crimes. These sorts of crimes have been committed in many times and places. The historically unusual thing is the, actually the clarity of the expression of the intent. Um, and the question for me is whether this is, has become normal. 
or whether it will become normal. Hannah Arendt spoke of the banality of evil. What I'm worried about is the banalization of genocide, where people talk about committing genocide so much that we just sort of take it for granted. And then if we're asked, was there a genocide, it doesn't seem to us like a genocide, because a genocide is something unusual, something extraordinary, something exceptional. But by talking about genocide all the time, they're making it normal. And so I worry that when the time comes to evaluate this and to try the cases, we ourselves will become so jaded that we'll just take, we'll take this for granted. The third, the third issue area, and it's related, that I want to talk about is the, the continuity of colonization, question mark. So um, the Russian relationship to Ukraine is, is many things, but one of the things that it is is a, is a colonial one. Um, let's start with another recent event, which is the explosion on the bridge, on the Kerch Bridge, the, the Crimea Bridge. So um, I'm going to do geography now. It's going to be hard. You're going to be quizzed afterwards. From the point of view of Russia, Crimea is an island. There's no land connection to Crimea. From the point of view of Ukraine, Crimea is a peninsula. There is a land connection between Ukraine and Crimea, which, by the way, is why Crimea was attached to Ukraine. Um, so the, after Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time in 2014, they built a bridge, completed in 2018, from, um, from, from a tip of Russia all the way over to Crimea. So that, the existence of that bridge is a result of a war of aggression and an illegal annexation. Um, so we're in a moment now where Russia and Ukraine are at war, and they express two different or two competing visions for what should happen to the Crimean Peninsula. From the Russian point of view, it should be naval bases, oppression of the native population, um, state terror. The Ukrainian proposals, you know, which we'll see after they get Crimea back, whether they do this, but the Ukrainian proposals are no military bases at all, demilitarization, one big national park, and uh, rights for the indigenous people of Crimea, who are the Crimean Tatars. What we, what we don't always remember, I'm going to dwell on Crimea now, because there's a way in which Crimea seems to many people like a fait accompli. Um, but there, the Russian invasion of Crimea was no more legitimate than the Russian invasion of the rest of Ukraine. They were both invasions. They both violated international law. They were both covered by these fake referenda. And in 2014, the referendum was just as fake as the ones that were held a few weeks ago. Just as fake. If you were presented with a referendum in which, it, in which uh, you had two options and both of them were, I want to be annexed with Russia, um, probably you would think that something was wrong. And that is what happened in 2014. Um, they, both options were, yes, annexation. Right? Um, and in that referendum, less than a third, of the, about a third of the Crimean population took part, and, uh, and the vote was split between the two yeses. So no matter how you look at it, there is no, like, there's nothing legitimate. Oh, oh I forgot to say. You can't hold a referendum after you invade a country. That's one of the rules. You're not allowed to go door to door with guns, and you, that's not a referendum anymore when you do that. So like eight years have passed, and Russian propaganda in 2014 was pretty effective. And so now we've kind of reached a point where we might say, oh, well, Ukraine, that, that's the real place. But no, Crimea, Crimea, that was always Russia. No, it wasn't. When anyone talks about always, it means they're an imperialist. Because what imperialists do is they take the actually existing history of actually existing peoples and places, and they say, I get to decide when it starts new. And of course, if I can decide when it starts new, then I also get to decide when it's always, right? So like if you, you, know, if you meet a girl and you take her out on a Friday night, and then like the next Monday you say, hey, we've always been together, you know, okay, you've always been together if life started on Friday. That is how, 
And it did, because that's when you met the love of your life, right? Um, okay. <laughs> that was, I'm just, like, testing the waters to see, like, like in Yukon, like, is there still dating? And, like, you know, um, Friday night, does it still mean anything? So, um, so where were we? Um, so, the, what, so, what, so in the case of the Crimean Peninsula, I'm going to make a long story pretty short, but in the case of the Crimean Peninsula, there is a lot of history um, involving, you know, for example, a Crimean state, which existed for 400 years, um, 600 years if you count the Mongol period. Um, Crimea never had anything to do with Russia. Um, there were no Russians living there until, until Russia annexed it in the late 18th century which from a historical point of view is, I mean, sorry, I'm a historian. That's pretty recent. Like, we've been around for a long time. Um, and, the, and so in, in, when Russia annexed Crimea, and this, here's where things get interesting, and it'll be familiar to all of you who study colonialism of any kind. Uh, Catherine the Great referred to Crimea and the South Ukrainian territories north of Crimea. She referred to them as New Russia. Okay, that's the magic, right? Like the New World, okay? You can settle the New World. There's nobody there, right? Because you called it new. You discovered it. Um, it's, the same, it's the same colonial thing, right? So new Russia means we get to start again. The people who are there don't count. Their history is gone. Um, eventually, eventually, every single, every single Crimean Tatar, every single one will be deported in, in 1944 under Stalin. Every last man, woman, and child will be deported. Right? Catherine the Great says, Crimea, is, Crimea, this is new territory. She comes in, she renames all the places. Um, she sends in scientists to write new atlases and to chart everything, and, and you start new. Okay, so if you start new like that, then you get to say, then you get to say always. And I'm, I'm just pointing this out because when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014, the idea was that uh, Russia and Crimea were always the same country. And a lot of people bought that, you know, a lot of people bought it. It depends on when your always starts, right? It could have started last Friday. I'm sure for some of you it did start last Friday, and good luck. Um, I, I wish you whatever it is that I could wish you in the 21st century. It's not going to be easy. Um, but that's a different lecture. So, um, the, so in 2014, when Russia invades, what happens? Um, Crimean Tatars, every last one of whom had been deported in 1944 under Stalin, had started to come back to Crimea in the independent Ukraine. Now they flee again. Right? Many of them flee north to other parts of Ukraine. The Crimean civil society organizations are all banned. The Crimean writers are now in Russian prison. Some of them for what are clearly nothing, like some of them are serving sentences like 17 years for what is basically thought crime, for having the wrong ideas. Um, the, the Crimean political institutions, which existed in independent Ukraine from 1991 to 2014, which included a, a kind of local parliament, local representation, those are of course all gone, right? All of, all of that is gone. Um, uh, and now, in the 2022 invasion, Russia is specifically taking Crimean Tatar men and sending them to die in the invasion in Ukraine, which is part of this larger policy of having indigenous men be mobilized and die. Why do I mention this? Because the idea that Crimea is always Russia is one that I think a lot of people swallow. But the idea that it's always Russia authorizes violently changing the place, which is what has happened since 2014. And the other reason why I'm mentioning this is that Crimea is always Russia, is like the cousin of Russia and Ukraine were always together. Okay? So once you swallow Crimea was always Russia, then you've been warmed up for this larger idea that Ukraine and Russia were always together. And again, always, 
always depends upon who gets to say what's new and when history starts again. So I'll just give you, I'll give you one little example of this. Right now, the Russians and Ukrainians are fighting in Kherson region, in the south of Ukraine. Uh, this is historically the region of the Ukrainian Cossack state. There is, a, there is a, actually a really long history of Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian national politics, which goes back into the 16th century. Um, and for a couple of hundred years, Ukrainian politics were organized around Cossacks and, the, and, and Cossack states, which were located in what's now the south and what's now the east of Ukraine. So um, when, when, uh, when, when, when Catherine the Great comes, she renames all the territories and she starts some new cities. One of them that, one of them that she starts is Kherson. Okay. What's wrong with Kherson? Nothing's wrong with Kherson. Um, but the name that she gives to Kherson is a Greek name. Okay, nothing wrong with Greek names. Greek names are fine. But the reason that Catherine gives Kherson a Greek name is that she's saying, we've started new, right? This territory is now ours, and we, the Russians, we go all the way back to the ancient Greeks, in case you didn't know, right? So this is a classic Enlightenment, age of discovery type move. And so this territory where Ukrainians had been and Ukrainians had lived and they'd been doing their things for good or for ill, right, is now suddenly has these new names, right? Um, I just mentioned Kherson because Kherson is a place where the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting right now. But this whole territory of southern Ukraine, which was also called New Russia, had been, the, had been the site of Ukrainian political activity, just as Crimea had been the site of Crimean Tatar political activity for hundreds of years, right? For hundreds of years. And so the same move is made with Ukrainian history as a whole. The same move is made with Ukrainian history as a whole. Ukrainian history ceases to exist. I get to decide, or the imperialist gets to decide, when things start, what's, what's new, right? Um, Ukraine ceases to exist. And this, is, um, this, is, this, is the, this has been the move that, that Putin has essentially made. Putin's idea is that um, I get to decide what belongs in history and what doesn't belong in history. And this is, um, to repeat, this is a fascist idea because the only thing that really belongs in history is this moment of purity at the very beginning. And this genocidal idea, because all these complicated things, like I've been throwing at you the Crimean Hana and the Ukrainian Cossacks and all this stuff, which you would have to be listening to if this were a Tuesday or a Thursday. Um, all of that stuff doesn't matter. Those are just facts. Those are just facts. The facts of the world don't matter. All that matters is this deeper unity. And I get to violently scrape away at the facts, at the reality, until that deeper unity comes out. That's a genocidal idea. That's a, that's a fascist idea. And it's also an imperial idea. It's a colonial idea. Because when you, when you don't recognize another state as a state or another nation as a nation, other people as a people, um, you're, you're rehearsing 500 years of European colonial ideas, which is what Putin is doing with Ukraine now. You're not a nation. You're not a people. You're not, you're not a state. That's not really there. You don't deserve, you don't deserve rec legal recognition as equals. You don't deserve that. Um, Putin in his, 30, in his 30 September speech where he claimed to have annexed four Ukrainian territories, he said, you know, in effect, there is no international law. Who said there was international law anyway? Who made that up in the first place? It doesn't matter. Russia is a millennial civilization. Right? That's it in a nutshell. The claim that we are there and we've been there forever and the millennial, which is a reference to this baptism that he's fascinated with, 
that means that we can do whatever, whatever we like and the rules don't apply. Okay. This brings me to the very last point. So I did get to the good part or the maybe, the maybe good part, which is ethic of democracy question mark. So if you've accepted any of the arguments that I've made in this lecture, these arguments about fascism and about genocide and about colonialism, then maybe you'll agree with me that political theory matters, that alternative notions of politics matter, that there are things in the world besides democracy and liberalism and that they have their own ideas. They may be strange ideas, maybe they're not appealing ideas, but they are ideas, they're out there. You might agree with me, again, with respect to fascism and genocide and colonialism, you might agree with me that the past matters, that it's really hard to evaluate the kinds of claims that Putin and other propagandists are making without knowing something about the past. Because face it, if someone says Russia and Ukraine were always together, and they're the ones who write the textbooks, which they are, um, even in this country, uh, you're going to believe it, you know, unless, you know, you're going to believe it, right? Unless, unless you have some access to historical source material, unless there's some contestation, unless there's, unless there's some argument. And the, I, I'm sorry for this list, but the future also seems to matter too. The future seems to be open. Many things seem to be possible. Maybe there will be a lot more genocide. Maybe there will be a lot more fascism. Maybe there will be a lot more colonialism. Maybe there will. Right? That all seems possible. And where I want to land this is that all of, the, all of this, that the past matters, that the future matters, that ideas matter, we have really hurt our own democracy by forgetting that. We have justified in the last 30 years since the end of the Soviet Union, we have justified democracy or tried to justify democracy in entirely neutral, non-ethical terms. We have said... Um, the reason why there's democracy is that there are no alternatives to democracy, right? That's, um, that's Mrs. Thatcher. Um, that's, that's, that's also a number of American leaders. That history is over. And so democracy wins because, you know, by default, there's nothing else left, right? Nothing else is left. And therefore, democracy is there to be crowned, to be crowned the victor. And why? why? Why is democracy the only thing left standing? It's the only thing left standing because this is the way the argument runs. I don't believe any of this. Um, that it's the only thing left standing because of larger structural factors like capitalism. Right? So, uh, and that's not true, by the way. China's capitalist, Russia's capitalist. There's a lot more capitalism in the world than there is democracy. Uh, capitalism is doing just fine. Democracy's not. Um, so the, so the, the, but the, the problem with this is not just that it's a mistake. <coughs> It's not, it's not as a matter of fact true that capitalism is going to automatically bring democracy. That's a mistake. But it's also moral suicide. Because the moment that you say that a larger structure, and it doesn't even matter what the structure is, whether it's capitalism or something else, the moment you say that a larger structure is what brings democracy, you're taking part in the death of democracy. You're taking part in the death of democracy. Because if everything is being taken care of by larger forces then what need, are, what need is there for citizens? What need is there for individuals? What need is there for educating citizens and individuals? What need is there for the humanities? What need is there for us to talk about human rights or teach about human rights? There's no need for that. It's all gonna be taken care of by these larger structural factors. And if there's no need for individuals, no need for individuals, then how can there be democracy? Who are the people who are going to rule? Because that's what democracy is. 
democracy is not a description of a state of affairs. The idea that the people rule is not something to be very often found in nature or in history. Democracy is a description of an ideal in this country and everywhere else. So if there's going to be democracy, then there have to be people who want to rule. Now, when democracy then faces a crisis, when it faces a challenge, what, it, what happens? If you believe that democracy is just a matter of larger forces doing the work for you, setting things up so that there are no alternatives, how do you react to a challenge? What do you do? You give up. What else are you going to do? You give up. If, the larger for if it's all about the larger forces, and if I turn around and say, well, the larger forces don't actually seem to be working, well, then you give up. And this isn't just a theoretical proposition. This is a description of how an awful lot of us have behaved facing challenges in this country and around the world in the last few years and decades. And I'm, I'm going to close this with the, example, with the example of this war. I'm going to close it with another television anecdote. Um, because since you're not watching TV and I thank you, I'll at least talk about TV. Uh, a couple of days before, or at least most of you are not watching TV. Um, um, a couple of days before the war began, I went on 60 Minutes, um, which if you're like undergraduates, and there are lots of undergraduates here, which is great, but like I'm sure you have no idea what that is. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a, sh it's a show that's been airing, it's a news digest show that's been airing since like I was a kid, maybe even before that. Um, I, so I went on 60 Minutes, and the question was, is Zelensky gonna stay? Because it looked like Russia might invade Ukraine, and so like Zelensky, he's just this little guy, he's a comedian, who is this guy, he's Ukrainian, what's Ukraine, doesn't really exist, you know, who is this guy, what's he gonna do? And uh, so you know, the, the drift of the question was, of course he's gonna run away. And I said, no, he's not gonna run away. He's going to stay. And, uh, and so, you know, mockery ensues on social media. Uh, then a, a couple of days after that, I'm teaching a class. At, I, 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 I'm a guest at a colleague's class at Yale. And he brings in the national security advisors from the Trump administration, a whole bank of them. National security advisors from the Obama administration, a whole bank of them. And he asks them the same question. They, well, he puts me in the middle. He says, Professor Snyder says that Zelensky is going to stay. <coughs> And they don't laugh at me because they're, you know, they're, 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 you know, in classroom mode and they're very polite. But they say, like, with all due respect, Professor Snyder and his historical achievements and la da da, you know, he's completely wrong. Zelensky's going to run. Now, why was it common sense that Zelensky was going to run? Why did everybody think Zelensky was going to run? Why did everybody think Ukraine was going to fold in three days? Everybody. Not quite literally everybody, but not just the Russians, but the Americans, the American government, thought that Ukraine was going to fold in three days. The Russians and the Americans had the same basic idea about what was going to happen. Why? Because if all you believe in is the larger factors, it doesn't occur to you that someone might be courageous. If for 30 years you've been telling yourself it's just the structural factors, and you ask yourself, what am I going to do if the structural factors don't look good? You're going to turn tail and run. That's what you're going to do. That's what they all would have done. And that's, what they, that's why they thought Zelensky was going to do that. And the reason why this is a problem is that democracy depends on an ethic. And this is where the hopeful part comes in. Right? This is where the hopeful part comes in. Because when we, when we see Zelensky staying, and there was that moment of fascination, but let's admit it, it was also a moment of mystery. 
I mean, the reason why it was so captivating was that no one could really imagine why he was doing this. It's like, it, was like, it was like a different, completely different program than we thought we were going to watch. Why? Where did, this, where did this guy come from? How could he be doing this? But then the fact that he stayed turned out to change an awful lot. Right? It, it, made, it made the Ukrainian resistance possible. It's done a good deal to hold off the fascism and the genocide and the colonialism that, I, that I've been talking about. But it also opens up a possibility of talking about democracy and freedom in, in a different way. When Zelensky stays, I'm sure many of you remember this, a couple of days after the war starts, bombs are falling on Kiev. There are still teams of assassins in Kiev, in the city, in and around the city, who, whose task assignment is to murder Zelensky. And he goes out you know, with his crew, basically, because the people he governed with, like they're his crew. They wear the same Nike shoes. Um, they, they, I'm pretty sure they talk about how they dress, because like, there's definitely a kind of, yeah. Okay, so he goes out with his crew, and, and they do a selfie video where he says, like, President Tut, right? The, pre the president is here. I'm here. And what is that? What is the I'm here? Well, he's telling the truth. He is there. He's, he's, he's denying the Russian propaganda, which says he's run. But he's doing something else. He's saying what, free he's telling us what freedom of speech is about. Because freedom of speech is not about saying the most obnoxious thing you can from a university lectern and then running. Freedom of speech is not about going on Twitter and like saying something to make other people angry. Like that might be somewhere in the penumbra of freedom of speech. I'm sure it's protected by law and all of that, but that's not actually what freedom of speech is for. Freedom of speech is for speaking truth to power. And freedom of speech is only really relevant when someone is taking corporeal physical risk. So when he says, I am here, it's not just that it's true because it's a description of reality. It's true because he's making it true by being there despite the risk, right? And that's, that's just, that's, that's an example which helps us get towards the larger truth of what democracy or freedom has to be. Um, democracy doesn't just happen. Freedom isn't just the absence of, of hindrances or obstacles. Freedom is the presence of people who have ideas about how they might want to change the world and are willing to take some risks on behalf of those things. Um, democracy, likewise, it isn't just what you get when all the other options have failed. Um, as Frederick Douglass said, it's always going to be the result of struggle, right? always the result of struggle. If there isn't struggle, um, you know, the, the, the larger structural forces are not on your side. Right? For, with either freedom or democracy, they're not on your side. There's going to be friction, there's going to be tension with the, with the, with the larger structural forces. So the, the Ukrainians have given us a kind of lesson in what an ethic of democracy might be, um, the, 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 that it involves risk, right? That it has to be an ethic, because the moment that you put democracy into the world of stuff that just happens automatically, it's not democracy anymore, right? That it has to be an ethic. Um, and then practically speaking, they've given us lessons in things like civil society or what they call volunteerism. Um, of decentralization, um, and then just this very basic fundamental thing that you have the right to choose your own rulers. Like I've, I was just in Ukraine and I spent a lot of time talking to people about like what they thought freedom was and wh why they were fighting the Russians. And it was always striking that what they, I mean, they had this basic sense that we choose our rulers and they don't, right? Good. But when they talked about freedom, it wasn't, it was never, we just have to get them out. And it was always, there's going to be a better future afterwards, right? It was always a positive idea of freedom. 
um, that freedom is where is freedom is something that you're you're aiming for, right? It's not just something you're not just against something, but you're in favor of something. And when I talked to Zelensky about this, because um, I, I saw Zelensky for the better part of an afternoon, and all we did was talk about freedom because he's the kind of guy who, even though he's fighting a war, he doesn't have to tell you like I'm the president. And I got you know, I said he said, "What do you want to talk about?" That's literally what he said. He said, "What do you want to talk about?" And I said, "I want to talk about freedom." And he said, "Great, let's do that." And that's what we did. Um, and because uh, he has some interesting ideas about freedom. It's not just that he's done interesting things. He's done things that are very interesting. But he has interesting ideas. And one of his ideas is that freedom and security work together, which I think is a good idea. Another of his ideas, and this one I'm going to leave you with, is that, um, that, when he, that if you are a free person, you know, it's not just because you're resisting or opposing. It's because you stand for things, right? which is a, a way of saying ethics. And if you stand for things over the course of a life, then you might find yourself in a position where actually you feel like you have to do something, right? So when I, when I talked to him about staying in February, that's what he said. I mean, without, in a, you know, without boasting or anything, but he said, look, you know, it was, I didn't feel like I had a choice. If I had left, then I wouldn't have been the same person, right? If I had left, um, I wouldn't have respected myself. He said that multiple times, right? So freedom is not about being against is about being for. And then when you're for things over and over, you create a kind of character, and then that character can reside in a place where it can take risks. Okay, so by, this is as optimistic as I get. I think, I think the fact that Zelensky stays, and I think the fact that the Ukrainians are still fighting, has opened an aperture. If, if they hadn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If they hadn't, and I were giving this lecture, it would be a very much darker lecture, a much darker lecture. Our whole conversation about the future of human rights and democracy would be very different. We would all be accepting the common sense that it's about the structural factors. And oh, look, the structural factors have turned out to be against us because look at China and look at Russia and look at what Russia did to Ukraine and what Russia did to Europe. And that hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it's going to happen. But if it's not going to happen, one of the reasons it's not going to happen is that somebody decided that it wasn't all about the structural forces, right? And, if, and, that, and, he, and that person is right. <laughs> and that person is right. So if you think it's all about the, the larger forces, then fascism has a future and genocide has a future and imperialism has a future. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Thanks. Thanks.